Welcome back to another Made for TV Mayhem show. I wish I had something funny and witty to say, but tonight has been nothing close to being funny or witty for us. We're having a lot of technical issues. So we're getting kind of a late start and we're feeling a little frazzled, but we are so, so excited to talk about these two movies. So the whole reason why I picked Death Cruise from 1974 and Cruise into Terror from 1978 was because summer's coming and I thought we could take a vacation together. I didn't know that a vacation, though, would involve dealing with Skype. That ended up being a thing. So we're having a real difficult time. So uh, the cruises that we're taking are pre-internet. So we're going to calm down. We're going to dial it back. We're going to go back to the 70s. And we're going to watch people get killed on boats. And I can't imagine anything better than that. So let's just get started before I start throwing things out the window. Okay. I'm here with both my co-hosts tonight, so I'm super excited about that. So let's start by saying hello to Nate. Hey, Nate. How's it going? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am... You might not want to ask that question because oh, that's say, true. Because I did, I was around for the pre-show. <laughs> yeah, if I say okay, I'll be lying, and I hate lying, especially to you, Nate, because you're um, so good. You're so good. It makes me feel bad. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so okay, and I'm also here with Dan. Although I think Dan's only half here. I'm, Dan, I'm, I, I apologize, folks. I'm a little under the weather today, but I am ready. <laughs> I am ready to take a cruise. They gave me that little drink you have that that calms your stomach before you go on board. So I think I'm going to be ship shape for the next couple hours. Okay, so it hasn't gone online yet, I don't think, but I recorded a hysteria continues uh, for Jacko with the gang, and we kept talking about what a shit pickle episode it was because there were so many problems, and I think we're <laughs> having our own shit pickle here, and it's it's really. It's devastating me, guys. It's devastating yeah, yeah. me. So, okay. So the only person here who's of his right mind is Nate. So, <laughs> and I don't know what that means. So, but, uh, so let's just move ahead. I guess we'll just dive right into the movies. I don't think there's much to say. There's no housekeeping or anything. So, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Death Cruise? All righty. Now, I will, before I begin, I will point out that if you've listened to previous episodes, you know that the larger the ensemble cast, the more I tend to get lost about halfway during my description. So I'm going to try to keep this as absolutely straightforward as I can. Fingers crossed. It's a cruise. Hooray! We're in Long Beach or something like that. Are we in Long Beach? In the, no, we're in the Gulf we're, of Mexico. We're in Richard Long Beach. Rich- Richard Long Beach, guys. <laughs> da, da. Also, when you get, just real quick, when you get to the captain... It's you're gonna to want to say Cesar de Nova, but it's mm-hmm. Cesare. Is it? Okay. Wow. I believe uh, I, so. I was just gonna say the captain with the accent, um, but Cesare. Oh, okay, I'm that's why too. Cesare, Cesare. <laughs> so uh, we uh, the cruise begins, and it's a lovely cruise. It's a big cruise on a huge ship, uh, classic cruise, and you meet three couples. Uh, you meet uh, the Carters. Sylvia Carter, Polly Bergen, Jerry Carter, Richard Long. Um, uh, Jerry is a, a, he's a he's an insurance salesman and he thinks about money a lot and he is, according to his wife, a bit of a scoundrel. And he looks at the ladies a lot mm. and generally ends up leaving her kind of like sitting in the cabin, sad. And then we have Kate Jackson is Mary Frances Radney. Radney? And Edward Albert yeah. is James Radney. They have been married two or three years. This is their second honeymoon. They're, they're a sweet couple. They don't have any kids. It's Obviously, it's Kate Jackson. It's, it's Eddie Albert's son. I know. I, it's Edward Albert. And um, they're charming. 
And then the third couple is uh, the Masons, Elizabeth and David, Celeste Holm, and Tom Bosley, for heaven's sake. They've been married, I want to say they're married for 31 years, I believe, and the last 25 have been raising kids, and now they've got an empty nest, and they're going on a cruise. And David David is very much of the, you know, let's, let's, let's have a good time, the kids are gone, where she is very much like she's constantly thinking about the kids. Uh, we also meet Dr. Burke, uh, the ship's doctor, who is just there for one, um, just there for this cruise. That's Michael Constantine. And then we meet the captain, who's played by Cesare? Cesare. Cesare Nova. Yes. And so they're all on there, and it's all great. And we meet these three couples. They have one of those things where, like, sit with a member of the crew at dinner. Everyone sits down with the ship's doctor, Dr. Burke. Uh, Jerry Carter isn't there yet. But Jerry Carter shows up, and we learn something interesting. We learn that basically all three of these couples have won the cruise through someplace called E&M Promotions. Jerry arrives, and things get kind of interesting. I, I say kind of interesting. They actually get pretty darn interesting, if you'll forgive me. So everyone's kind of like, huh, what's going on? What? We're all here. You, we know, all... you know what this scene reminds me of? Even though this isn't a supernatural film, and that's no spoiler, uh, Haunts of the Very Rich is actually like this as well, oh, yeah. you know, where they all kind of wind up somewhere and they don't know how they got there. And I think they think they won a contest, right, to I, go to I an s- island. I want to say yes. I want to say yes on that, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So they're all there, and it's like, hey, we're all here, and we're having a good time. And so we kind of see them all hanging out and, and, and doing their thing. And then, oh, boy, trouble. Uh, Jerry is possibly going to meet with a young lady uh, during the evening, and he is um, he is kind of like on, on, on the deck, on, on the, um, the railing, kind of looking out at the ocean in the middle of the night. And then suddenly he's gone. And they find his like cigarette case or cigarette lighter or some some yeah. sort of yes an item that belongs to him and it's like oh my god he fell overboard he's dead was it an accident did he fall or was he pushed oh wait a minute that's not right but you know what I mean and so Jerry's like what Jerry's gone and Sylvia's sort of uh, you know like oh he's gone but yeah he was kind of a jerk even if he was Richard Long and you know. Uh, there's a there's a scene here um, where they're talking about him falling off the boat. Kate Jackson says to her husband about how 
horrible it must have been to yes. see the boat getting smaller and smaller. That really is disturbing. Yeah. Like that piece of dialogue. Uh, and so she's she's setting up like what it must be like to fall off a boat. And I'm like, wow, this really took a turn. <laughs> didn't yeah, it? yeah, it it, it does because she says something like, you know, to to call for help and just watch the ship get smaller and smaller, which is especially in the dark when you know that that there's probably no one looking maybe i don't know maybe um yeah. you, Do- dr burke does do a lot of stuff in this so possibly he was looking so so what happens is we lose him the group begins to um they begin to have some troubles um obviously sylvia is kind of heartbrokenish about the loss of her husband and the uh, the radneys begin to discuss kids he doesn't want them she does and at this point we learn that uh, kate jackson is a crack shot with a uh, with a rifle you know the <laughs> yeah, right. she she reminded me of the uh, woman from uh, uh, the redeemer who who you first see with her shotgun yes. and um and and then we also have uh, the i'm sorry the masons and uh, Mr. Mason has kind of said to his wife, you know, if, if all this is going to be about is our kids, then maybe we should end this. Then he finds her drinking. She kind of gets her own back. Well, I mean, he's such a jerk to her. Like, yes. he's not very sympathetic to it because basically she's a housewife and she says this to him. She's like, you know, you get your job and you get to get up every day and have purpose. And I was the caretaker and the chauffeur and this and that. And now I don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. And he's like a douchebag about it. I can't think <laughs> of a better word for that. Yes, and she she give she does. I, I will say this at the end of that that the that that scene where she she kind of balls him out and he he leaves. She kind of is like, oh, I went a little too far, and she kind of looks out and kind of yells for him. But as she yells for him, we also see a very strange old gentleman who's been popping up throughout oh. the movie, who is very. <laughs> yes. um, uh, very suspicious looking and is constantly like talking to the, uh, Dr. Martin saying, uh, Dr. Burke, I'm sorry, saying stuff like, um, you know, have you got all my medical records? Have you got this, that, and the other? So, so as this is going on and spoiler as well, no, it's not a spoiler as more people begin to die in this group, 
we begin to see a little bit more of this creepy old guy, and uh, Dr. Burke begins to sort of take uh, take command, and uh, things kind of build, and a few more people are killed, and um, uh, and there's a scene where they are all assembled. Basically, the, the captain and the doctor cotton to the fact that these six people are being killed, so they bring the remaining ones into a room, and uh, sit, they sit them all down, and they have uh, this discussion. You know, it's not in the clip, but also right before they start to talk about, like, how they've been targeted to be murdered, uh, Edward Albert talks about how the refrigerator must be getting full of bodies. Yes. And that's that struck me, too. I was like, you know, for a movie that felt so light when it started, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's not like you see anything super gory or anything, but it mm-hmm. it's just, I guess I used the word before, but it's dark. I can't think of another word to say it. Like, the language between everybody is really dark. Yeah, and there's the moment where Tom Bosley, basically, where um, Kate Jackson comes up to him and says, hey, Mr. C, how you doing? No, she doesn't say that. She says, Mr. Mason, how you doing? And he says, they're keeping her in the fridge. They're keeping my wife's body in the fridge. And it's just like, he says it, and you almost want to hear a bit of laugh track. You hope you hear some laugh track, but you don't, which makes it even darker, I think. Uh, so, so yeah, so at this point, there are a few survivors left. Someone is killing these six people. It has something apparently to do with Atlanta in 1970, but no one can quite figure out what the link is. And Dr. Burke is on top of it trying to find out what uh, E&M promotions are, possibly trying to find out who this strange older gentleman is. And I'll just stop my plot synopsis right here. It's It might get bad for the survivors, or it might not. So... I just thought of this while you were doing the plot synopsis, and so maybe we'll spoil it here. Uh, So if you haven't seen Death Cruise, I recommend that you don't listen to the rest of this because I don't think it's a great mystery, but I do think it's one where you probably want to watch not knowing how it ends because it does have its own thing going on there that's a surprise. And um, it's convoluted. But as you were talking, Dan, it occurred to me that in a way, I think that this movie is to a degree like Friday the 13th in that it's an unsolvable crime and not completely unsolvable. Mm -hmm. But 
but when you find out who the culprit is, it's pretty obvious who the old guy on the boat is. Uh, and so I'm just going to tell you, it's Jerry. It's Richard Long's character. That's mm-hmm. not a surprise. But the, the thing about Atlanta is fabricated. He So he yes. works for an insurance company. And basically, he's like, um, I just looked up people, random people, and I just figured out who was all in one place at one time. And then I gathered us all on this boat under the guise that it's a contest. And then said, oh, I must know you from Atlanta. So it looks like that there's some kind of thread happening with all the victims. But really, and actually it's like Fatal Frames. If anybody remembers Fatal Frames, it's like basically like I, think, I killed I a bunch of people. So I everybody remembers Fatal Frames. <laughs> so it's like I killed a bunch of people so I could kill this one person. It just looked like a series of murders. Yes. And so in a way it's unsolvable because – you know it's Jerry, but then he's got a partner, right? And so the partner is Kate Jackson. And I think it's 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 almost written in a way that it would be impossible to figure everything out because they don't really give you the clues. And instead, at the end, they just reveal everything. So it's kind of a trick in a way, like the way Friday the 13th was a trick. There's no way you could ever figure out who was killing everybody because you don't see her till the end, right? Mm-hmm. So here it's like feeding you a bunch of clues that – aren't really ever going to make sense. So if you're piling them away in your head, it doesn't matter because they serve no purpose. But that doesn't necessarily diminish the quality of the film. And actually, to bring up something about The String of Murders, if you think about it, so Kate Jackson's trying to get rid of her husband. Richard Long's trying to get rid of his wife. So they've ensnared them in this contest, but then they've also brought in this completely innocent couple, right? The Masons have no attachment to them. And mm-hmm. and they get murdered, right? So so they basically just killed this old couple because they're heartless. You know what I mean? It's like kind of a dark film. It's like I keep saying, like like really horrible things happen to these people. But um so anyway, uh Dr. Burke like figures everything out and confronts Richard Long on some beautiful beach somewhere and then and then stuff happens and then Kate Jackson appears and she kills Richard Long and then she acts like she's saving the doctor. And then, you know, the doctor's like, I know you're the killer. And I know we've gone really fast to this and I just spoiled everything. But anyway, that's what happened, guys. And so um, I've seen Death Cruise before and I remembered that Kate Jackson was the killer. I didn't remember the rest of it. Um, this is a really good movie. I really like it. Something that struck me, and I'll talk about it when I get to the background, is that a lot of the critics pointed out how it was about three dysfunctional marriages. And... Um, I hadn't thought of that the first time I watched it. I just thought of his three couples on a boat getting killed. And it's doing a lot of different things here. So it's kind of um, critiquing marriage, I guess, in the 70s of different generations, right? There's the couple who've been together for a while. There's a couple who are kind of newlyweds. And then there's the older couple. And, and none of it's very happy, right? And this is in the age of people splitting up. But it's also a proto-slasher because it's doing things um, that slashers do. And in and it's doing things slashers don't do. Um, it's also an Aaron Spelling production, so it's glamorous. It's all get out. It's pretty fabulous, especially Polly Bergen's wardrobe. So, like, you were talking about how Richard Long's constantly leaving her alone, but she's always in, like, these two-piece dresses. Yeah. And she's, like, in her 40s, and she's fucking working that shit. Yeah. And I'm like, really? she's beautiful. And I'm like, really, Richard Long? Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't get it, but anyway, so so it's it's got everything. It's got the it's got this Aaron Spelling stamp of glamour. It's got the proto slasher blueprint, 
it's kind of a dark, weird little film, and I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it the second time around now that I was more in tune to the characters and stuff. It's it's a really fun movie. I don't think there's a lot of downtime. I think uh, Michael Constantine's really good as Dr. Burke. Um, he's he's yes. really quite good, and I, I could see him sort of being a ship doctor who solves crimes, like, on a weekly basis, yeah. although nobody would ever take that liner after a while. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. but, uh, but that would be a really good show, and I would watch it. He's very charming. Um yeah, I really liked it, Dan. What'd you think? Oh, I, I I quite liked it. Yeah, I the the only um the only issue I have with it is I think the end does have one twist too many. Um, yeah. I I think there's just like when when you discover that Richard Long what he's up to and then Kate Jackson shows up. I I just thought that was I love good twists. I love like getting surprised. But that was one where when it ended, I thought oh, okay. I thought so. Wait a minute. Two thirds of one third, yeah, one third of those six people was involved in this thing to kill another third of that. That just seems like one person bringing five people there to kill one of them makes sense, but two people bringing four other people there to kill two of them seems a bit much. Um, but I do love the concept that he he did kind of just go through all his records just to find like Atlanta, nineteen seventy, the week. And I love that thing where they just keep like 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 in the clip. Oh, don't I recognize you all? And no, I don't think so. And you just it's immediately implanted in your brain that oh my mm, god, yeah. what what happened in Atlanta, nineteen seventy? Then in the end, it's like no, nah, nothing happened in Atlanta in 1970. And I like your, your point about it being sort of unsolvable, like a lot of sort of giallo and stuff where you can get clues, yeah. you can get a, you can get all the clues you want, but it isn't until the explanation that it's going to make sense. And, and whereas a mystery, you should, you're, you're going to get people who are like, oh, this person did that because of that kind of thing. And, but you, that doesn't bother You know me. what? I'm really glad you said giallo because it probably is more like a giallo, right, than it is a... Uh... Well, it's a proto slasher, but Definitely. but like because it's got the glamour, it makes it its eyeball right where they're traveling. Yes, yes. And and <laughs> it's unsolvable. That's actually a better comparison than the one I was making to Friday the Thirteenth. I like that better. Yeah, and everyone everyone is uh, is is great in it, and I do. Yeah, like you, I really like uh, Michael Constantine as Doctor Burke. The because he shows up kind of, and he's like, "Hey, I'm the ship's doctor. Oh, you got to get into your uniform." And then Tom Bosley thinks that he's the captain. He says, "No, I'm just the doctor, just stepping in for someone for this cruise." And like halfway through, it's like, "Why are we calling in the police?" Someone or something like that. Well, uh, 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 Doctor Burke is looking into it. Oh, Doctor Burke is looking into it, but he's really good. And he figures it out, which, which I like because they kind of sneak in a detective into it. You kind of meet him at the beginning, and then yeah. about, about halfway through, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Not only is he a, a good doctor, but he's like, he's kind of a detective too, which is cool. And and it kind of adds, it's a lot of elements that you would kind of not really have seen when slashers hit, which is the joy of proto-slashers, because you can throw in everything, and it all it all works, and it's all part of the fun. You can have Eddie Albert and... Uh, I'm sorry, Eddie, Edward Albert, sorry, Alberts, uh, and Kate Jackson, like, standing in front of the, the ocean, just having really emotional scenes mixed with, like, dead people on, you know, uh, lying on steps, and they put her in the fridge, and just all these great... And that great ending, and... And it was great to see Richard Long. I spent the first 15 minutes of the movie going, I know that guy. 
I know that guy. And yeah. I was like, wait, wait a minute. For last year on Adventure Super Train, Mitchell Hadley and I spent like 20 episodes discussing Bourbon Street Beat. <laughs> he's the star of Bourbon Street Beat. I was like, I, I, I don't know why. He's like 15 years older here. But um, I don't know why I didn't yeah. recognize him. So, but yeah, I, I thought he's I thought great. I thought it's a joy if if you if you like um and and two it's a ninety minute one so it's only about seventy three seventy four minutes because so it kind of gets in sets it up does its business and goes so I uh, I recommend it highly I quite enjoyed it yeah I like the economical approach too I think it's really well done um, Nate what did you think um, I thought it was like a slasher movie so that made me very happy <laughs> good um, then I guessed the killer wrong and that made me very sad oh who do you think it was well, here's the thing. So I thought I was being so clever this whole movie because I was like, mm, E&M Promotions, obviously Elizabeth Mason. Oh. And I so, should have figured that out. That's so, so good. And so, like, I keep waiting. And then even when she died, I was thinking, okay, it's all right. It's all right. Like, she could have faked it. She faked it. And then at the end, um, when it was revealed, you know, about Kate Jackson, um, like – uh, at the end, I was like, it's looking less and less likely that my guess is correct. <laughs> I'm like, I just don't hell see. Of a guess. Yeah. I just don't see Mrs. Mason standing with a shotgun over the beach and shooting Kate Jackson <laughs> next, and then the doctor looking up and her looking down and being like, E and M Promotions, baby. Yes. Would that not have been a good that, ending? Oh my that god, that would have been, been good. Yeah. If she had, if she had like thrown a card down from the top of the cliff and you saw it float down and hit the ground in front of him and it just said E and M Promotions. And he just oh, perfect. And she just frame. walks off in silence. Yes. Oh. You know, and the thing is, Celeste Holm would have been into that. If somebody <laughs> had approached her with that, and she would have just embraced it because she was that kind of actress, that she was just so good at everything. Oh, that's so much better than what we got. Now you I know, hate Death Cruise because it doesn't have that ending. I'm like, that ending would have been fantastic. It would have been amazing for this movie. But as it stands, you know, I still like the movie. I like the characters. Um, I found their relationship dynamics to be kind of interesting. I also, I kind of loved, you know, when uh, Polly Bergen, uh, Sylvia, yeah. um, when she's been informed, you know, that her husband uh, is missing, like, you know, at first she's just kind of whatever about it. But then when she realized how serious it was, she actually seems to get genuinely upset. Um, which really she shouldn't have because, uh, you know, he's a killer and he's going to kill her later. But she don't know that at the time. She doesn't know. Poor Sylvia. That's such a tragic character. She reminds me of the girl in um, Mother's Day. You know, the one that has the boyfriend that's always doing coke always and doesn't care about her. her. Yeah. yeah. Dismissive. Yes. And and you feel for her because because she's better than that. And you can clearly see that even in Mother's Day when you don't even know her that well, you can see she's better than what she's living with. And here in the movie, you definitely know that Polly Bergen is better than what she's been saddled with. And so it's really sad when she dies because, honestly, that was her, like, piece of freedom coming to her. You know what I mean? She was yeah. going to have her minute in the sun, and and then she she didn't get it. And that's kind of... Yeah, it is, it's just a dark film. Yeah, it's, like, surprisingly... It's just surprisingly go places. I think it's because you do care about the characters, you know? And even yeah. though, like uh, Dan was saying, David Mason is can be a little ornery around Elizabeth, but that's just because they're going through something. But he genuinely loves her, you know? So when she died, even though they had had that fight, it was like it was a fight. It wasn't really like forever, you know? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I. Sad. I 
Yeah, I, I think I think just the thing with if they've spent the last twenty five years of their life solely devoted to their kids, and now their kids are gone, he's just he's just moving on into the next stage of her life quicker than she is, and getting annoyed with her. And being on the cruise, I, I just got the feeling that, yeah, he was like, okay, this will do it. This will free her up. But it, but it's not. And he, he should be more understanding. But he's he's in his space. She's in her, her space. And then um, everybody dies. So it's like it's, it's, it's a lot like a great slasher in that in a good slasher, like a prom night or, and we can argue this one, final exam, uh, you like the characters. <laughs> oh, you haven't done that in forever. I, I you haven't slipped well, that one in forever. Well, I, I, uh, j- just because, like, in final exam, and and some will argue with me, but I think you get to really like the characters. And then in the last half hour, when they all have like their, she, she, you know, she's leaving town. She's got her last exam. These guys are going to do some drugs. These guys, they're going here. They're going there. They're doing this. They're doing that. Boom, 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 boom. They all get killed one right after the other. It's like, ooh. Ugh, and this is kind of like that too. I mean, when you see Edward Albert's character, just his—it's like Kate Jackson steps out into the hallway, and his body is just like on the floor, you know, in the yes. hallway. You know, it's so undignified. He's just like, just like on the—you know—it's not like he's not in a fun pose or anything like that. You know, he doesn't have an axe in his head. He's just on the floor dead, and it's really just sad. Yeah, yeah, it's just such an interesting little film because I I guess you don't think it's going to go there, like especially because it's an Aaron Spelling production. It's interesting, too, because uh, these are both Aaron Spelling productions. I think that he just has a thing about boats. <laughs> I'm not sure what they are. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When, when you watch Lobo, Lobo does have serious things happen on the show, but you never expect it to really, like, it doesn't look at the same dynamics the way this movie did you know like it's like it's digging into dysfunction and like um unhappy marriages and like and love boat it's all about correcting those right and so so it's doing the opposite but it's it's really interesting that it came from there but like i said like just some of the dialogue and what you said about edward albert's death also is really poignant because i hadn't thought of that but you're right because she just comes back and he's in the hall and it is a moment where you're like oh my god and um but like just just them talking about like my wife's in the refrigerator and and him falling from the ship. Uh, it's just such an interesting weird movie, and it's it's funny because it starts off just like an episode of Love Boat where they're throwing the streamers yes. out and waving. Yeah. yeah, who are we waving at? <laughs> I don't know. You just wave, you know. And 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 um, uh, Jerry Carter there gets some really bad exposition. Like, well, I'm an insur- you know I'm an insurance salesman, honey. I don't have That's a heart right. or whatever. You know, it's just like he gets the bad exposition. The young couple get to wave and do, and it. It it does feel like a love boat that's about to go to hell. Love boat goes to hell. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating. And also, just another shout out to Cesare Denova, not just because I like saying his name, but also <laughs> like the crew. What little we know of the crew, with the exception of the guy that gets hit over the head when he's trying to protect them. These yeah. guys are smart, you know. Yes. And so, what's so interesting about TV movies? You see a lot more in TV movies than you do in theatricals and actually you see a lot in disaster TV movies is that the, I'm just going to call them the patriarchy, but the people who are like running the show, like the corporate heads and uh, people who run the ship and the captains and whatever, you're expecting them to halt progress because in a lot of movies, there's always that guy that like runs the corporation. He's like, Oh, well we have a holiday coming. They don't really do that as much in TV movies. They actually participate and they want to help. And so like, there are better examples of this, but whereas like you might expect the captain to be like, Oh, well we can't, 
let people know there's people dying on the ship and let's just brush this under the carpet and keep an eye on them. He's fully into it. Like, let's figure out what's going on and let's catch this guy and let's take care of it. And so, like, everybody's trying to figure out what's happening. And I really love that. Um, it's a lot of fun and I think it makes the characters more likable. And um, and I like that the crew is smart, with the exception of the guy that gets hit over the head while he's trying to protect people. <laughs> that guy's not very smart. The, but the, like... doesn't, the, doesn't the captain have a point where he says like, "What? Yeah, yeah, he's where? Yeah, he has the point where he says we're locking everything down. Everyone stays in their cabins until we find out yes. what's going on." It's like wow, on a, like a pleasure cruise to do that when it's clearly yeah when it clearly seems to be a group of people are being gone after, uh, uh, sought after rather than everybody. But yeah, no, I, I do like that. Yeah. Yeah, it just it does things differently than than theatricals do, and um, that's another reason why I like this movie so much. Yeah, it was really good. Um, I don't know if there's a ton more to say about it. No. Do you guys want to say anything else? Well, I know I I feel like Nate might have more to say since this is his slasher cruise. Well, what I wanted to say is why is the doctor not joining the FBI? Because I wouldn't have figured out any of this stuff. Yeah. Like I was lost when he was explaining it, and I was like, oh, okay, well that makes sense. So does that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, so you know, there was sense. a there was a spinoff called Doctor FBI. Oh, that, that would be perfect. Yeah, it was just two episodes, oh, yeah. but it was really oh, good. Yeah. Oh, and I missed it. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, part uh, part of me likes to think that maybe maybe the writer was, and I'm just making this up. Maybe the writer was asked to write it and was told, "You're going to write about these three couples." A la, and I know Love Boat wasn't on yet, but a la the futuristic show Love Boat, futuristic as in four years in the future or five years in the future. And you're going to write, and, and he came in and he wrote the script, and in the end he was able to, you know, wrap up all their stories with emotional arcs and, and proper endings. And then Aaron Spelling came in, ripped the like last 30 or 40 pages out, and went, okay, start to kill them right here. And is a what? I gave them all the arcs and emotional st the stories and everything. No, no, no. We start to kill them. I, 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 because I always find that I would think from from writing as I have, when you know that you're going to kill off all these characters, it can become tough to write the stories for the characters because yeah. you're just writing you're writing them to the point where they die. So I like I like maybe then in this one. You know, he, he wrote the full stories and they said, okay, stop this person's life here, stop this person's life here yeah. and here, etc. That would, that would be interesting because, you know, I saw it as the opposite. What I saw mm. was that they got a script or Aaron Spelling concocted it and they wrote it and he started to think, oh, we can have like multiple stories on oh, a ship. yeah. And maybe we can look into that. I don't know when the Love Boats book came out. To be honest, um, I have it, and I've tried to read it. It's horrible. So I don't know how he got inspired for Boats, but it's got all of the qualities that Love Boat has. And one of the things it has, and we talked about, was that it's it's generational. So we've got the older couple, the middle-aged couple, and the young couple. That's that's uh, signature Love Boat. Yeah. You know? And, and like the setup, all of it is Love Boat up until the murders, you know? So I just kind of wonder if like, like they wrote a script and then he was like, ding, you know what? <laughs> yes. What if, what if we did it and they lived and they found each other, they found their way back to each other? What would that look a, like? And, and there was a laugh track. Yeah, and there was a laugh track and we had a kooky crew. And it's interesting because Captain Stooping starts off as an idiot. He's no Cesare DeNova. 
I'll tell you that much. <laughs> you know, because Kevin Subing evolves a lot through Love Boat. He starts off as a buffoon, and he ends up as a pretty dignified guy at the end. So, but he's so he's not like that. But yeah, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like I feel like somewhere the roots were planted yeah. for Love Boat in yeah. Death Cruise. And doesn't doesn't Captain Stooping end up with Marion Ross in the end? Isn't he does. It? Yeah, Tom Bosley's. He had to kill yeah. Tom Bosley off wow. to get her. Of course, of course. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> it, it was Captain Stooping. Yeah, now it all makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that and, was okay. a twist that Michael Constantine did not <laughs> I have. I've just one more thing. There's a scene in here where, right before Sylvia dies, where a, a like a a, a, a a steward or someone brings her a, 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 um, a drink, an Atlanta blackout, and he's just he's oh, that's and right. it's, it's and it's obviously it's the killer has sent her this drink to remind her of Atlanta and whatever was supposed to have happened, and she looks very disturbed by it. But the scene is shot just like. Like the the like the steward or whoever is standing behind the sun or a big light, and so the light is shining well, on me. Right. I keep, and I keep like looking at his face, going, "Is that is that Richard Long? No, that isn't Richard Long." But they're, huh? That's and they shoot it in such a weird way. It it almost feels. I, I was going to say I mentioned this earlier. It almost feels like like how the Redeemer would show up throughout the Redeemer in kind of weird yes. ways and strange ways. It just has this thing like, "Here's your drink, madam," and it's like, "What is this? It's an Atlanta blackout." Bomb, bomb, bomb. No, the music doesn't do that. But but <laughs> the know, light is behind. It's really weird. I just want to say I'm glad you brought up the Redeemer again because I think we'll wrap up the conversation with this. But what I think we've pointed out is we've all referenced like. A gazillion horror movies just now that we love that Death Cruise reminds us of and so if you're listening and you're super into slashers or jellos it turns out you might want to check this out it's not as scary as a lot of those movies but it's got all those elements and it's it's kind of a really great film for people who love slashers I think agreed definitely so we're going to recommend it I think Nate you can recommend it I do recommend it Ooh, look at that. Finally, I picked one we could all agree on. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. So let me just go through the background real quick, and then we'll get to the next movie. And I can't believe we did that without things just completely blowing up. And <laughs> So I'm really happy about that stuff. Okay. So um, it aired um, on ABC on October 30th, 1974. So... Um, it was a Halloween movie, guys, which makes it even better. Um, I made a note here what other Halloween movies aired in 1974. So I just want to briefly tell you that Halloween season of 1974 was actually a really, really plum uh, TV movie horror thing. But all the movies were different. Um, and I'll just tell you what else aired for that uh, season. There was uh, The Stranger Within, which is a classic with Barbara Eden, of course, which, based off the Richard Matheson story. Um that's a really good one. There was something called Locusts, which I don't know if either one of you have seen, but it's uh, sort of an animal amok slash drama with Ron Howard and Ben Johnson and Catherine Helmand, and it's absolutely amazing. It's actually more drama than it is horror, but the locust scenes are really harrowing. I mean, they're amazing. Then there was Where Have All the People Gone with Peter Graves, which was kind of this post-apocalyptic. It feels like a pilot, but I don't know that it was. About a bunch of people, well, it's, a, it's about a guy and his two kids, and they're in a cave when this, like, solar flare goes off. And when they come out, everybody's been, like, disintegrated. I don't know if either one of you have seen it, but it's really, really good. It's on Amazon Prime 
currently. If anybody wants to see it, it's really creepy. Um, and then, of course, our favorite, Bad Ronald, also aired Yay. in October of 1974 for Halloween. And I don't even have to tell you what that's about because we all know. <laughs> and we covered it if anybody wants to go back and listen to that. So um, the original title of this movie was just The Cruise, which I really like. It was filmed in August of 1974 with an 11-day shooting schedule. So I only bring that up because August, September, October, right? So two months they had to shoot it. And do post-production and get it on the air and they did a really good job with it a lot of tv movies get this kind of turnaround it ran against on cbs something called sons and daughters and an episode of canon on nbc it ran against little house in the prairie and lucas tanner it was actually kind of promoted heavily because it ran the same week as the airing of the poseidon adventure which ran as the abc sunday night movie and was ended up being the top rated program of the week the poseidon adventure it got a 39.5 slash 62 which means 62 percent of america was watching the Poseidon Adventure on the night it aired. Uh, it ended up being the third highest rated film to air on TV at that time. The number one movie was Airport. Number two was Love Story. Uh, Death Cruise did really well, though, following off of that. It won the night in the ratings and was in the top 20 for the week. There was some confusion about the ratings, though, because uh, some newspapers listed Rhoda as the number one. And I don't remember what the other newspaper said the number one was. Uh, but I think that's because some of the ratings went up to Sunday and some started on Monday. I think that Rhoda might have aired on a Sunday. I'm not positive of that. I don't know. It was confusing. But anyway, it did really well, even though... Um, it only came in at number 103 for the season. It got a 16.3 slash 31, which just means 31% of uh, the television movie audience was watching Death Cruise, as you do. It was filmed on the Queen Mary in Long Beach. Uh, I found this news article where they interviewed uh, Tom Bosley and Celeste Holm. It says here, Tom Bosley, Polly Bergen, and Celeste Holm were filming a scene from ABC's TV's Death Cruise when director Ralph Sineski asked for two women to snuggle up closer to Bosley. I feel like a book, chuckled Bosley. The joy of sex, no doubt, replied Celeste. See how much fun they were having, guys? Gosh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty, yeah, <laughs> he got it not just from Mary, he was getting it from everybody. Um, the wine on the ship was cranberry juice. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but this would be Richard Long's last performance. He actually died a little after oh, yeah. they shot this. He was only 47. Uh, he that year I think he made another TV movie which was really good called The Girl King Gift Wrapped with Karen Valentine that I really enjoy we talked a bit about Polly Bergen in our Haunting of Sarah Hardy episode if, if you want to go back and listen to that uh, I, I'll leave the trivia for that but she plays a wildly different character in that too she was a really wonderful actress Kate Jackson of course would go on to become the queen of the TV movie at this point she was most famous for The Rookies uh, and she had also appeared in Saints School for Girls and Killer Bees um, Ralph Sineski who is the director. He's still alive. He's in his 90s. He has a really amazing website, which I'll try to post a link to when I post this episode. He said that he couldn't film the walk. So anyway, if you go on his website, he writes about everything he ever did. And he only made a couple TV movies, but he goes in depth on the making of Death Cruise. So I'm only going to cover a very little bit of it. If you're interested in how they shot the movie and anything else, go to this site because it's amazing. Um, he said he couldn't film the waters after the ships left the harbor because uh, the deep sea looked much different. So they were right on shore when they filmed it, and it just didn't look as natural. So he had to keep everything sort of on the ship proper. Sineski really enjoyed uh, the final product, but he said it felt like an elongated episode of the TV show, which we kind of said because we said it felt like a love boat. Sineski also said that parts of the last scene were shot later to make the ending more clear. I, I don't remember him being more clearer than that about what was shot, but I guess there was some confusion about the ending in the original script, maybe? Uh, so the screenwriter's name is Jack P. Sowards. Uh He was a... Uh, 
episodic guy. He did some theatricals. It turns out he also wrote Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. What? Death huh. Cruise. A Star wow. Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Super, super fun different. movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This guy knows what he's doing. And as we all know, Ricardo Montalban would play Mr. Work. So there, it's all attached to Aaron Spelling, no matter how you cut it, guys. And that's all the trivia I have about death cruise so what can i say we all really enjoyed it it's not too hard to find so everybody should seek it out and give it a go it's a lot of fun as much as i loved death cruise no spoilers but i'm gonna tell you i love cruising to terror 10 times more it's so amazing so let's just yes i know it's hard to believe but it's true so let's go ahead and just dive into cruising to terror there is a devil there is no doubt but is he trying to get in us or trying to get out? All right. Now, this is even more ensemble casting than the last one. I'm going to try not to get lost, and I'm going to try to keep it as quick as possible. But we basically we have a, uh, a ship. Uh, the ship is um, – uh, I'm looking at Merrill – uh, right now, Hugh O'Brien plays Andy, in parentheses, Captain. So I guess Hugh O'Brien plays Captain Andy. And on the ship, he has a guy named Emmanuel, he has a guy named Nathan, and he has a guy named Simon. Simon is played by Mr. Dirk Benedict. And they have a ship, I think it's called the Opia? And oh, no, it's the Obea. It's the Obea. Obea. That's a voodoo term. That's... Oh, okay. I thought it was like Cassiopeia or something. Obea. Okay. All right. I miss her. I, miss I think so. So, uh, so they got a ship, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a passenger ship, but there's a, uh, they're in the vicinity of, uh, Mexico, Gulf of Mexico and such, and they have to take on board eight passengers and sort of get them to a location, um, because the ship, the cruise ship is overbooked. So this is kind of a cruise on kind of a, a tinier ship, and it's, at the beginning, it's very much like, well, the ship's only got one engine, why are you doing this to me, and da-da-da, and whatever. But he brings on board the eight passengers, I'll just say them really quick quickly and i'm gonna get some of them i'm gonna do, do my best of course you get the berries sandra and neil hooray linda day george and christopher george christopher george's character is very greedy sort of and seems to be ignoring his wife a lot which is very strange to me and she just wants to try to rekindle their romance which probably means that she didn't think they'd end up on this dingy old one-engine boat crammed into a little space. But she can work with it. She's Linda Day George. And you also get um, Reverend Mather, played by John Forsyth, and uh, Lil Mather, uh, played by Lee Merriweather. He is a very devout uh, reverend who has apparently had some booze issues, and she is a little wary of him. She doesn't seem as sort of enamored of him as maybe she once was. They, they seem they seem very shaky. And then you get oh uh Ray Milan shows up as Doctor is it Isaiah Backham? I forget the pronunciation on his name. But he is an archaeologist kind of guy who has a very interesting theory which we will hear about in a moment. Uh then who else is there? There is Judy and Debbie, correct? I'm 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 getting lost in the names here. Judy is Joanne Harris and Debbie is Hillary Thompson and they're just two pals. Who, who have come on board and are just trying to, uh, trying well, to have a good time. Is, is that right? Debbie, Did I get the names right? Debbie is the ugly one. Yes, I was just about to say, yeah. J- J- Judy, played by Joanne Harris, is the is sort of hot one, and Debbie is the one who wears glasses and is a little sort of mousy and such. Yeah, she's, uh, she's gorgeous. She's gorgeous, yeah. though. And they're like, oh, uh-huh, you're the yeah. ugly one. You'll never meet a guy because yeah. you wear glasses. And it's just like, <laughs> really, guys? She's like yeah, a size on. two, and she looks like a yes. model, and it's, there's some glasses on her. She's and then they're gorgeous, like, oh, yeah. she's hideous. <laughs> 
Uh, and then we get oh oh, oh Frank Converse, Whoa. of course. Yes, yeah, Frank Converse. You, what's his name? Uh, Matt Lazarus. That's your first clue. Name. Yeah. Oh boy, something's going on there. And so there's that and that. And did I get them? Oh oh, Stella Stevens is Marilyn uh, Magnuson. She is on there also. Yes. She's she's traveling by herself and flirts with um, uh, Andy, Captain Andy, a lot. And so they leave and they go on their way and they're traveling and they get to know one another. And they're doing some diving here and there. They're hanging out. They're having meals. They're, it's all great. And then we learn from Dr. Backham. He, he has a theory about um, the ancient Egyptians and Mexico, which is why he's here and what you're going to hear now. You are a physicist, sir? Well, sort of. I'm, I'm really into mathematics, Professor Bakun. Well, you know me. My reputation, of course, and, and your books on the Mayan-Egyptian cross-culturalization. That's it. That's where I know you from. Dr. Isaiah Bakun, anthropologist, archaeologist, biblical scholar. This is an honor, sir. I'm afraid you're one of the few who think so. Well, surely, Professor, you don't mean that. You think not? I've spent my entire life gathering proof that the ancient Egyptians sailed to Mexico 2,000 years ago and founded the Mayan civilization. But not one of my neo-Neanderthal colleagues would accept that theory. You must admit, Professor, that your theory runs uh, contrary to popular belief. Nonsense. Some years ago in Egypt, I found a piece of ancient papyrus which revealed that Cleopatra Silenus ordered a tomb built where the sun hits the sea. Now, my calculations prove that that tomb is on the island of Cozumel, Mexico, and I shall prove everything when I find that tomb. And it's super ludicrous. He's like, oh, the Egyptians got on a boat, and then they dropped off this thing in the water. And then the Mayans showed up, and they're the Mayans, and the Mayans are Egyptians. Like, whatever. What were they thinking when they wrote that script? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It was just like, I mean, it was good storytelling, right? So, like, the thing is, they tell stories throughout this. Like, everybody gets a chance to tell a story about something. And they're good. The actors are convicted, you know. Is that the word I want to use? Mm -hmm. Convicted to the role? Yes. Convicted. Committed. Committed. Yes, committed. (laughs) You know what I mean? They've been convicted and now they're serving by making this movie. (laughs) And, um, and, but so the storytelling is good and I'll want, I'll be willing to buy it because Ray Milan says it, you know, and whatever he says, I'm going to buy. But yeah, it's like, it's like really Egyptians. How did they even get to Mexico? Like, I don't even understand. It's it's just whatever. I, I, now I, I do, I do have something of sort of a, something about that when we actually discuss the, um, the movie. Um, regarding that theory because the first time okay. I watched this like four years ago I was like huh but I've actually been working on something the past few months where I, don't, I still Ooh, might go huh experiment. yeah so yes exactly um, my, my own Contiki I've been traveling on a little raft across the ocean um, so uh, what ends up happening is um, yeah the, the ship there's trouble with the ship and they end up wandering into the because ter- um, Frank Converse's character Matt Lazarus I, I believe he's a mathematician or he's something and he's figured out where Dr. Backham where this this site was supposed to be it's underwater now and they kind of end up near there so they all go for a little check, you know, go to check it out. And they, they end up pulling after losing uh, Nathan, I believe, one of the crew members, and possibly more oh, crew the members. Only, got, 
the only black man in, <laughs> the on only... The, in the movie, and he has this horrible accent. And it's Roger oh, Mosley, yeah. by the way, from Magnum P.I., and yes, who's yes. wonderful. And yeah. and he, of course he dies. And then this Mexican deckhand shows up, who I didn't remember seeing him before. Like he's Emmanuel, just all of a sudden yeah. they're like Julio or whatever series. Emmanuel. Yeah. <laughs> they're like they're like clean up the deck, and he's like yes sir. And I'm like where did that guy show up? <laughs> Because all you're thinking is Dirk Benedict and Hugh O'Brien, and that's like okay. Well, that's, well I guess th- that's all you need, really. Yeah, exactly. That's so like they, the, they, oh my god, that ship. That's why nobody's complaining about being on that ship, guys. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly oh when when, Ju- when Judy and Debbie see that Dirk Benedict is on there. They're like, "Aren't you from Battlestar Galactica?" And he says, "In about six months, ladies." Give me six months. Mm-hmm. Just hold on. Yeah, I'm working for Spelling now. I'll be working for Larson. Well, he says months. he says to he says to Judy, yeah, give me six months. But then he says to Debbie, oh, never, never. <laughs> never. You are so no, hideous, not the, Debbie. Not with not with the glasses. No, 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 no. No. Uh, uh, so uh, so they end up pulling up this tiny like baby sized sarcophagus, and it's gold and it's 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 pretty incredible ish. And and you know, Doctor Backham is is crazy about it, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, this thing!" And the captain's like, "You know what? We got a Dirk Benedict is fixing the ship. Once he gets gets it fixed, we're gonna head back to wherever they were going, somewhere in Mexico." But there's there's actually a scene where the passengers kind of speak to Captain Andy about wanting to go back to the U.S. After the engines repaired, do you intend to continue on to Cozumel? That's the right one. We were talking about it before you came in. And we agree it'd be better if we returned to the States. We see that sarcophagus and the artifacts we brought up, they're quite valuable. I mean, not only financially, but historically. And the Mexicans, well, they have some very strict national treasure laws. I understand, but that's not my priority. Especially the condition this ship is in. We're not going to take unnecessary risks. We're closer to Cozumel, and that's where we're headed. Now hold it, Captain. Those artifacts are ours. And we're going to keep them. We voted on it. I love this scene because of the way it ends. Because Christopher is like, we voted on it. Like, it's, yes. like, there's so much conviction. Now I've got the word right. Yeah. That, there's so much yeah, conviction yes, in his voice, yes. yes. That he's like, we, like, oh, nah, 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 nah. We all voted, Captain. But the Captain runs the ship. He's the Captain. Yeah, he's the law on the ship. Yeah. So, so it's like, I, yeah. uh, so... And then what what happens at this point? You know, I'm, I've got Debbie up on the screen here. She looks a bit like uh, Margot Kidder in Superman. She looks a bit Lois Lane. She, if she was hideous. Yeah, if, if Margot Kidder was hideous. <laughs> um, and so so what happens at this point is you, you get the, this little sarcophagus, and the the Reverend Mather says, "Throw it off the ship. Get rid of it. It's it's the it's it's basically you know two thousand years ago. You know we had like every thousand years something <laughs> terrible ish happens, and he believes the son of Satan is in that sarcophagus, and everyone's like, oh, blow it out your hole, Reverend. But he's like, come on, and and what begins to happen is sort of in the way that after the first death and death cruise things begin to deteriorate." 
that kind of happens here and some ways um, in more disturbing uh, ways than others. There's actually a scene uh, right here where Judy and Debbie, who have been real sweet to each other the whole time, but you get kind of the feeling that Debbie, I believe Debbie paid for Judy to be on the cruise, but Judy's having Yes, because she's than... ugly and she needs a friend. Yeah. There's something to do with a flare gun, and I'm going to let you guys listen to this. Judy and Debbie beginning to have a rough time. Now that's all you have to do. I don't think I can do it, Judy. Debbie, you have to do it. Now, if there are ships in the neighborhood, this could be our only chance of getting out of here alive. You don't have a choice. Okay, but stay with me, please. I can't stay out here alone. I'm scared, Judy. I don't care if you're scared. You're always scared. Well, I am sick of it, and I'm sick of you. Judy, don't say that. Please! Why? Can't you stand the truth? What are you talking about? I am talking about always following me around, bribing me with trips and cruises. Well, I don't rub off. So why don't you just accept who and what you are? What am I? I don't know and I don't care, but you're not me. And I am sick to death of trying to help you become something you're not. Now leave me alone. Yeah, it's it's just silly. Like I don't understand how they elected Debbie as the flare gun person, and then yeah. but it makes I kind of understand where she's coming from. She does not want to be left alone, but yeah. Judy is so intent on leaving her there, probably to spend time with Dirk Benedict. But this is where everybody starts to kind of like whatever no. like your insecurity was no, or your flaw. Yeah, yeah, it just it just gets bigger and worse, and it eats you alive, and then you become that flaw or that insecurity. And Man. so, like, they've all been taken over, right, by, like, something bigger than them that's digging at their sores and, and making them boils, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so yes. um, so Judy and, and Debbie fall to this, you know, but it's bonkers. Like, for 20 minutes, like, yeah. everybody's going insane. And, like, Christopher yeah. George is horrible to his wife. Like, oh, he throws her on the bed. And, like, yeah. don't do that. Don't do yeah. that. No. Yeah, and, and so I'll, I'll sort of... Oh, my, and my, Lil. My... Lil. And, and oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, yeah. I guess that's the that's the twist. We'll wait on that. That's the twist. Okay. okay. Yeah. So so I, I'll just end my sort of plot synopsis with it. Yeah. The Reverend says, I forget if it does. He say that um, I, I forget. I, I didn't write down the numbering, but he says something like twelve people are assembled, and one of them yes. will be the guardian of the evil thing or something. Oh no, he says. I think it's like thirteen. Will be, oh, I forget, but he says we will all will be assembled. And it will be the right number, like a gestalt of um, the right number of people to bring this thing back to life. And one of us will be the guardian. And if one of us is the guardian, then we're basically not human. Now, there is a black cat running around, but I'll leave that till later. Or maybe we'll forget that. I don't know. But I'm just going to leave it there. The, the son of Satan might be in a sarcophagus. The sarcophagus might be breathable. Yes. The shit's, the shit's going to hit the fan. So I'll stop it right there. Yeah, I love that. I love that the sarcophagus breeze. Like that's such a neat effect in this movie. It's kind of unexpected and it's cool, you know, because it's it's not that grand. Like what you what did you say? It was like a really impressive ish uh, sarcophagus because it's tiny. It's like it's like a foot long, and it's it's got a little little tiny head (laughs) with like the big helmet thing around it. It's not that great, but I guess it's solid gold, right? So. It's worth something to somebody. But um, also you forgot to mention that they go for a swim and there's a shark. Oh, the shark. Because yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a skinny shark, Very too. Pants. 
Yes, it's a little skinny shark. He's a cutie, and he's, I, like, gunning for them. Yeah, I, I was hoping actually, oh. like, a zombie or something would pop up. Well, the best part, though, is that Hugh O'Brien jumps in the water, and he pulls out a knife, and then the shark runs away. So I didn't know that the shark, <laughs> he understood what the knife was, and he took <laughs> off. Like, he responds. Well, that's, yeah, that's Wyatt Earp, isn't it? Didn't he play Wyatt Earp, yes. I believe? So Yes, yeah, yeah. And he was in search, so yeah, I'd run away too if Hugh O'Brien came after me. Well, I just love that he understood that, that a knife was like a like oh, this shit's getting real, no. guys. It's getting real. Yeah. That's why that shark is so skinny because he understands, <laughs> yes. right? When there's I, danger. I've run, I've run away from more meals than I should have, but I keep trim. <laughs> Yeah, that's basically what happened. I do love that scene. Anything with the shark it automatically shoots it up to like the top of my list because <laughs> I love sharks so much. But um, now I've seen this one before as well. I guess we'll just do the twist here since I did, I did it so early on in the last time. So basically, um, you know, all this shit hits the fan. But the big reveal happens when Lil, Lee Merriweather's character, who's married to the Reverend, is basically like we find out that she's been pent up sexually for like a long time. And... And that the evil one understands this. And so she's kind of, I guess she's walking around or whatever. And, you know, it's interesting because she plays this really plain woman. But when she takes her hair down, ooh, it's Lee Merriweather, guys. She's beautiful. And so she's walking around the ship. And Matt Lazarus, if that didn't give it away, shows up. And he's like, basically, I know what you need. And come to me. And he's Frank Converse, so he didn't have to be Satan, first of all. <laughs> just had to come to the door like he is and ask me over and that's all he had to do but anyway for her he has to be satan and so he uses his spell working or whatever the guardian of satan or whatever he is and and they have sex and then she sort of belongs to him afterwards and so he's kind of like slowly recruiting the passengers to his side by causing all this chaos and stuff and then the reverend um he has like a showdown of sorts, right? Because isn't the yes? There's fire. Maybe you should take over. Yeah, because I'm having a, now. I'm getting <laughs> hazy on exactly what happens. So they all end up. So just a few of them end up in this room, right? It's yes. so Ray Milan goes in there to like open it or something, and he gets attacked by the sarcophagus. Like it rolls over on him and it kills him. And then I think randomly people end up in the. Um, room the people that are like the recruits so like debbie's in there so debbie gets taken over i don't know if christopher george ends up in there or not but i know that lil's in there with matt and the reverend's in there and he's doing his hoopy joopy stuff his exorcism or whatever and the cat's in there and this fire erupts basically all the bad people go down with the ship um debbie yes. lives and i can't remember christopher george must survive but does he I believe he does. I want to say he does. I would have written down he, feel, he died. I would have. Yeah, I feel like the spell is broken uh, enough, except for, like, obviously, if you sleep with him. That's <laughs> that's a more intense. Uh, that's yeah. something more intense that's happened there. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, so they all kind of, like, snap back, and they end up on a little dinghy or whatever, and they just go home. But, like, we've, we also forgot to mention that Stella Stevens and Captain Andrews have this really amazing night together. Yes. Everything's falling apart. She's trying so hard to get laid on the ship, and you're like, dude, it's Stella Stevens. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, why is this, doesn't this happen immediately? Why, yeah. Yeah. Why is this so difficult? And so, <laughs> well, finally, Captain Her and Captain Andrews end up together, and and they talk about all these things that are happening. And she has this great poem, which I played in between the scene, the segments here. That's really mm -hmm. good. And uh, 
and um, she's like kind of an anchor. Like she's untouchable as far as I know from the Guardian because I don't think there's he even tried to reach her in any kind of way or Captain Andrews. By the way, that's Andy Andrews. Let's keep that clear. Is that Andy? Um, <laughs> I believe so. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> you can't. You can't. His his life's already ruined. You can't mm-hmm. corrupt him any further. When you when you grow up as Andy Andrews, you're just that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so that anyway, and I think the sarcophagus just ends up back down at the bottom of the ocean. Yes. Much yeah. like Jason did at the lake in Friday thirteen forty six. And that's it. That's your cruise in the and I, I I feel that I, I feel really bad that I can't remember how Christopher George ended up, but you know, we had to postpone this by like a week. Yes. And I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. So well, and let's just be honest, this movie throws everything but the kitchen sink at you. <laughs> yes. It's it's very clear. Yeah. It's very clear what's happening, Nate. If you can't follow it, I can't. Uh, yeah, it lost me. Um, I loved it, though, for that reason. That's why I enjoyed it. Yeah, well, so go ahead. Tell us what you thought of it. Oh, I mean, uh, it was just a fun movie. I thought it was completely nonsensical. And just the whole basic plot line just is hilarious to me. I mean, at first, when I first was hearing, you know, when they were talking about the sarcophagus being, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was just thinking, um, is this satire? Or, I mean, this seems pretty serious. So I'm thinking we're supposed to take this seriously. But that was kind of part of what made it fun. I mean, that shark attack scene, huh? That's one for the books right there. It was <laughs> great, pulled, though. He pulls out a knife. Yeah. Like, and the shark's like, recognizes that that's a weapon. And the shark's like, yeah, I don't want none of that. <laughs> Beats don't fail me now. Got like some fans today. I am not about to get them messed up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was good. And I just love how dramatic everything is, you know, like, um, there's just so yeah. many scenes that are just, like, very, you know, like, the music's like, dun-dun. So, I mean, that stuff's just amazing. It's funny because right now on my screen is that scene with the flare gun where they're arguing. Oh. Or actually, they're not really arguing. I mean, poor Debbie's just like, why are you saying all these things to me? <laughs> She's getting, like, ripped apart. Oh, Judy, yeah, Judy, Judy's not cool. No, Judy's but I... I think that, you know, it was the stress of the situation mm-hmm. and maybe the sarcophagus as well. I think it was the sarcophagus. I feel like he was getting inside everybody and making them that. do horrible things to each other. Yeah, because it just, she flipped out for like no real reason. Yeah. And, and Debbie had a legit, please don't leave me up here. Because I yes, think Satan's I mean, in this I would, boat. Yeah, I would really wouldn't want to be left alone either. I mean, she has pretty good reason why. You know what? Her friend, really, Judy, she needs to take Debbie after all this is done now. She really needs to take her and be like, you know what? I'm going to give you a makeover. And then she just takes her glasses <laughs> off and is like, shake yeah. your hair. There you go. Debbie had an adorable haircut. Like, there was nothing wrong with Debbie. No, like, there could... wasn't. That's what was so funny to me. <laughs> yeah. I was just I was just like, really? The ugly one, guys. She's the ugly I Don't let me on that boat because my self-esteem couldn't handle it. It reminds me of, I don't know if. <laughs> either of you have seen that movie from the 90s called The Granny but they yeah. have oh yes the, yeah with um, the daughter in the uh, movie is played by yeah. an actress called Shannon Worry who is obviously yes. like a beautiful gorgeous. she is yeah. gorgeous and all they've done is give her like an unflattering hairstyle and a pair of glasses and everybody yes. in the movie talks about how ugly she is and how she'll never find anybody and I'm like are you kidding me yeah. <laughs> look yeah. at her that's kind of what I was thinking with Debbie. I'm like, come on. Yeah. She's obviously an attractive person. Yeah. It's so yeah. funny you're trying to make it seem like, oh, she's just so homely. 
She has to buy friends. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's poor Debbie. Poor Debbie. But I, for her. I did too. At least she lived. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of nice. Like when the spell was broken, that Judy was like, "Come on, come on," because like it didn't, it wouldn't have felt right. I feel like the people who died at the end were the people who should have died at the end. You know, like it was, it was great that some people got to like jump out of that state they were in and like resume their life. You know, and be, go back to being nice people because what happened between Debbie and Judy was really minor. You know, and it's forgivable. And so like, and I like that she came through at the end for her buddy. Um, although if Dirk Benedict was there, she might have just thrown her over. <laughs> Is that what you would have done? Yes, it's uh, Dirk Benedict, guys, or you would. I mean, you you would have heard Debbie go uh, as she was flying overboard. I'm ugly after all. <laughs> and she hit the water. <laughs> I tell you, the Poor ending Debbie. I wanted to see for this one is I wanted Elizabeth Mason to pop up and be like, "Hey, I <laughs> dropped oh. the sarcophagus ear." <laughs> Throwing her card across. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the image of the card is my favorite part. Like just throwing it down. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that it'd be funny if somebody had like if there was like a scene of her doing that, I would add it to the end of so many movies. Oh. Like, and here's and my card. It's Aaron Spelling, so it could be like the Aaron Spelling verse. Like these yep. characters who show up from TV Ooh. movie to TV movie. Celeste Holm yeah. is yes. always the twist ending. <laughs> She's always the twist ending. Oh, what could have been? Oh, what could have been is right. Oh, Aaron, yeah, Aaron, I thought up the ending. No, no, I already know the ending. Get home on the phone. All right. <laughs> phone home. Phone home. That's right. Phone home. <laughs> so, wait, Dan, what did you think of this one? I, uh, as, as with Nate, I, I think... Um, the, the joy of the movie is that it really does throw it, it's like 96, 97 98 minutes of just throwing everything it can at you now at the at the I, I will say the, the, the one uh, not a problem I had with it because I could watch this movie endlessly uh, but I just think um, I think it would have worked better in the 90 minute time slot I think it would have worked Maybe. better if they had, if they had, because they don't actually retrieve the sarcophagus till like forty-five minutes into the movie or something like that. So it's like the, and it's fun to have them all hanging out. It's the, the sarcophagus kind of drives the, the second half forward, and there's sort of no like as much as I love the second half with the sarcophagus and everything and trying to figure out like okay the sarcophagus is breathing and it's creepy but how much is it doing and how much is it everyone being changed because of having this thing here and not actually mm-hmm. affecting them maybe it's just it's the 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 devil inside of them coming out oh uh, I, I love it that because that that was part of it to me is if if you hadn't seen the sarcophagus breathing there really isn't much that shows it as being like an evil terrible thing like nothing leaps or does it not, you know it's, it's not that there isn't a huge monster doesn't leap out of it and grab everyone and eat them no. So, so to me, it was like if you hadn't seen it breathing, it was almost like could could this be a mix of the sarcophagus's influence and the actual like the evil inside of these people doing stuff, which I really liked. However, in the second half of the movie, there's so much. Well, there's a lot in the first half, but once the sarcophagus is discovered, there's so much going on that there was a point where, and my notes actually show this. There's a point where I stopped taking notes. There's a point where my brain just went and just shut down. 
and I was just yeah. watching things happen. Now that's not bad. I you know, oh. I've seen the last slumber party forty times, you know, so I can ooh, get my brain. Ooh, you to, slipped to, in another to... one, Dan. Yeah, do you like that? I thought I yes. hadn't done those in ages. I hadn't done those in ages. But you know, th- but there are films like that, you know, where like you know, Night to Dismember, something like that. You know, it's just like these goofy, crazy films where all this stuff happens and after a while your mind just sort of stops and you're just watching things happen. That's not bad. Well No, not that's a really good thing. So let me tell you, until Recently, I have been riddled with really, really bad insomnia. I've been sleeping really good the last few nights, but like I literally would go like two or three days on like four or five hours sleep, and it was driving me bonkers. The thing about movies like Cruising to Terror, what you say is that your brain shuts off. It puts me to sleep in a good way. So this is an action-packed yes. movie, and I feel like anybody watching it, you're not going to fall asleep. But there's a point where you're just letting them just do – you're like, forget it. I don't know what's going on anymore. Just yes. let them do what they got to do, you know? And it's relaxing because you're just kind of letting them play things out. And and it made me – I had to turn it off because I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to finish this film tonight because I'm actually relaxed for the first time in like – two months That's awesome. and That's and perfect. so i'll watch it in the morning when i wake up over with my coffee which is what i did but um it's it's like it's wonderful that way because sometimes movies are there to just entertain you and it doesn't matter to me how they do it as long as they're entertaining and this did it in such a way that it actually took all of the anxiety that i've been carrying around for two months and it kind of pushed it to the side and it just took over and it was like oh i think i can go to bed and fall asleep and so it was really good so i know what you're saying like it's like a cozy mystery you know you let them do the driving it's like so when you watch murder she wrote you can play along and i did at first but it's really just about watching the guest stars come on and be the guest stars and be awesome and and have jessica fletcher do what jessica fletcher does and so there's a point where you just stop you're like oh somebody died okay whatever and and you just let them do what they need to do to get to the end of the episode and it feels good father dowling so good that's exactly what father dowling does and so um chris and Terror does that but it does it on acid yes, you know what i mean yes, it, so yeah. you know it, it, it just goes crazy so your mind can't even function if it wanted to but that's a good thing i think it worked really well but anyway dan i didn't mean to cut you off but one one of the things I've always said, like, like there's a movie I love, and I, I I forget what you guys think of this one, but it's Byron Quisenberry Scream from eighty one, eighty two, the one set in the Texas ghost town with like you forgot Alby what Nate Moore thinks of that Stone. movie. I I, yeah, I think Nate I likes mean, that that's movie the too. movie that the dude blocked me over because I said I liked it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> I think I, I I got I got into a semi fight with a guy on Twitter over that who who was just like uh, when when I would say like I actually think it's quite good and I would give them the link to the thing I wrote on Bleeding Skull and he'd be like oh that's okay dude but it sucks lol and I thought well that's not really an argument and then then so I stopped talking to him yeah yeah Scream is one that. I put on, and Curse of the Headless Horseman, the the Leonard Kurtman film, is kind of like this too. Uh, I can put on, and at some point, it so kind of just washes over me that if I fall asleep, it's okay. That's part of the experience. That's if I get so relaxed that I don't know what's happening. It's part of the experience. It's a it's a different it's a genre of movie that I don't think we've pinned down yet. And even though Cruising to Terror is crazy, I think in it does that. It gets to a point where there are so many familiar faces, so many people you just love to watch being kind of silly, but but giving it their all. They've got that conviction 
that we love or what what do we commission they got their commission or whatever it was they got <laughs> they they're they're in it and they're in it to win it and you just you just as as I watched it the first time and I watched it the first time like 3 or 4 years ago this was one of the first films that I think I watched after we started doing this podcast this was one I was like I got to watch this and I watched it but when I watched it about a week and a half ago I got 20 minutes to the end and I just let my my mind go I saw a fire and I saw people leaving in a boat and I thought, okay, it's over. And then I thought, well, you're going to have to talk about you're going to have to talk about this dance. So you're going to need to know some of the details. I, I think it, the the only thing I, I have with it, like I said, is that it doesn't um, it doesn't like drive towards it doesn't like push towards the ending. It just a lot of stuff happens and then eventually it ends. So it isn't like it, 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 imagine it's like. Um, jumping off a building with a parachute is cruising to terror. Jumping off a building without a parachute would be, <laughs> you know, what you kind of yeah. want. You know, you, you want it to go, whoa, barrel towards the ending. But cruising to terror is like, you know, we're going to take a while to get to the sarcophagus, and then we're going to take a while after. There's no rush. We're in no hurry. So, so I, I recommend it, but in my heart, I think it should have been uh, like a 90 minute time slot instead of two hour but everyone's so much fun that I can't I can't uh, denigrate it and I, I just had a couple things Joanne Harris I'll watch her in anything she was at, she's of course in the what pretty much the slasher film Deadly Game she plays Keegan the extremely charming final-ish girl in that film which is more or less a slasher film it's kind of more of a thriller but it's kind of it's slashery uh, and she also plays in the first episode of BJ and the Bear after the TV movie, she plays BJ's love interest. And a season later, she is in the clip show episode of BJ and the Bear, BJ's Sweethearts. So it's always great to see her. Oh, oh, uh, Dr. Backham's theories? Can, may I give you my theory on his Oh, theories? yeah, please, yes. So, so yeah, it's, it, it, the Egyptians came over, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, there are actually theories out there, and I'm not 100% sure how much I can say at this moment, because what I was... Uh, I do transcription sometimes for TV shows, and I've done transcription oh, okay. for a show that is doing an episode about why there are so many sites in North and South America that have iconography from Asia and Europe and Africa. Oh, in them. Okay. And so and so they like go to like there's a there's a site in Colombia near Bogota that has like all sorts of um, statues and and things and giant phalluses that 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 it's true they are and but they're all like Hindu related you know and they brought an expert a Hindu expert there and said oh that's Hindu that's Hindu you know and there's site there's a site in uh, upstate New York where there's sort of like druid type things happening. And there are some sites where there are what seem to be Egyptian iconography in South America and Mexico and stuff like that. Now, I, I can't go too far into it, but when sure. I think when Dr. Backham said this, I think it sounded screwball, but there have been archaeologists and anthropologists over the years who have said, oh, no, no, you know, the because there are there is iconography that is in North America, South America, and in other continents that seem to be the same, but most anthropologists, archaeologists say, no, no, it just happened. You know, in Egypt they did this, and here we did this. But there are others who say, no, 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 they traveled across the water from here to there. 
his theory is not one that's accepted, but is one that has some credence, sort of, and and might have more in future times. Um, the only so tricky... you're just saying the screenwriter Michael Braverman probably just didn't make pull this out of his ass. You're saying that he probably found a book about these theories and it existed. I, this idea, I, I would bet you. I would bet you this being um, February of 78, I think we were two or three seasons into In Search Of. I'm fairly certain In Search oh, Of probably yeah, had, at yeah. least, had at least one episode about um, uh, folks coming over from uh, Asia, Europe, Africa to the New World, as it were. The only thing about Dr. Backham that's weird is that if he is truly espousing this theory, which at that time and still now is sort of radical, I put that in quotes, I don't know how radical anthropologists and archaeologists, you know, they're not like punks or something, you know, up on right. stage cutting themselves up or leaping onto people, you know, but radical. The the one tricky thing is that when they actually, he's like, the, the Egyptians came here and this is one of their sites and they find what seems to be an Egyptian sarcophagus. And it's like, oh, wow, he seems to be proven correct. But then when the reverend holds up like the um, slab they found with hieroglyphs on it. He says, but but we, we shouldn't take this, doctor, because look at the hieroglyphs. They say this, that, and this. And the doctor's response is, oh, that's just mumbo-jumbo. You're going to believe that? Which seems weird, that you have someone who believes a theory that no one else believes about the Egyptians, and yet he doesn't believe that Egyptian hieroglyphs actually mean anything, and they're mumbo-jumbo. So it's kind of like they they have him being one type of archaeologist and another type at the same time. And it's that's a little weird. But the actual theory... Is interesting, uh, not huh. not proven, but but interesting. Huh. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. So, okay, I don't have a response to that. <laughs> no, no, please. <laughs> There's, There's no response to think here. about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so well, we want to keep Nate here, and we have a few more minutes. Yes. So let's wrap this part up. I think we all like this movie. Again, thumbs up. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Okay, great. Okay, yeah. so. Let me just give you, I have very little background on this. Let me just give you to you. Uh, I do have one piece that I posted on the social media that I don't know if you guys saw. Um, but let me tell you, it aired on February 3rd, 1978 on ABC. It ran against on CBS, the TV movie Dead Man's Curve. This is really interesting. It just occurred to me. You know who's in that? Richard Hatch. So Apollo and Starbuck went toe-to-toe. <laughs> what? In TV movie. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Yeah. It just oh occurred to me. Yeah. And then on NBC was The Rockford Files and Quincy. This movie came in at number 89 for the season um, with a pretty good rating here. It got an 18.7 slash 30, which just means 30% of America was watching it when it aired. Killer on Board from the previous year was actually originally also titled Cruise of Terror, so it was very close to that same title before they changed it. Killer on Board is like about a disease on a ship with Patty Duke. Um, it's pretty good. It's not like this. One newspaper said Cruise of Terror was Love Boat Crossed with the Exorcist. Another television critic called it a head scratcher. The LA Times said it was an outrage. It was outrageous, but passes muster as an amusing time killer. Kevin Thomas, also of the LA Times, said it was lively and melodramatic, and that he felt the writer, director, and cast seemed to be having a great time with the story, which I think Dan pointed out. Uh, Linda Day George. He also said Linda Day George and Stella Stevens got a shout out. Um, I'm sorry. I'm saying that he gave Linda Day George and Stella Stevens a shout out for giving an edge to what he felt were otherwise sketchy characters. Another critic suggested watching with friends and talking back to it. Another journalist said it was better than most movies in the genre and it had a good cast. So it got generally decent reviews. I think people tapped into the sort of energetic nature behind it. Um, the Casper Star Tribune in Casper, Wyoming, mistakenly called it Voyage into Terror in their promotional uh, material. One of the taglines to promote the movie was Passion Turns to Evil, Cruise into Terror, which I love. 
Okay, so there was an article that was floating around several newspapers about Stella Stevens and Andrew Stevens. This was a paragraph from it, and I guess this was a thing that almost happened. The Stevens clan is doing all right as far as work goes these days. Stella Stevens is being touted for a prospective series spinoff from the ABC TV movie Cruise into Terror. It's sort of Love Boat come Fantasy Island. So this was actually almost a TV series. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing, right? And I found that in several yeah. newspapers. Just this article went around to all the local papers. Um, I guess it's true. So I'm sad it didn't happen, <laughs> but it was almost a thing. And I would love to talk to Stella Stevens, although I heard she has dementia now, oh. which is really tragic. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I would love to have talked to her about this because there, maybe there's a script or some kind of premise that she could have told us about um so cruising to terror had a vhs release which i have actually in in an interview to pro- oh hugh o'brien did uh, a couple of interviews to promote the film um he said that he was very lucky that he was able to choose what projects he wanted to work on he said money wasn't a factor it was about who was working on the project and if he enjoyed the script so it's interesting to think of him making this movie because it wasn't something he had to do <laughs> so he just really enjoyed the script and he probably, he probably liked working with the cast um, he mostly uh, shunned guesting on episodic work because he said that uh, quote you're dead in the marketplace when you're seen that way although he did do I think around this time with Charlie's Angels where he played a Hugh Hefner type and he ends up courting Kate Jackson um, to take oh. it back to Death Cruise yeah it's a really good episode um, it's a, from the first season because I think Farrah Fawcett is the Playboy Bunny um, in it he said Cruising to Terror was like the Orient Express uh, crossed with Jaws or Love Boat with Fantasy Island by the way Hugh O'Brien starred in the Fantasy Island pilot movie as well oh I wrote this down just because I thought it was funny this has nothing to do with the movie but he went on to say that Aaron okay first about Aaron Spelling he went on to say that Aaron Spelling is, is a very honest guy when it comes to evaluation and he told me that he thought the movie turned out well in terms of a two hour movie and that it would get a hell of a rating, which it did. Then Hugh O'Brien jokingly said that there are five stages in the actor's career. I just wrote this down because I thought it was so cute. One, who who's Hugh O'Brien? Two, get me Hugh O'Brien. Three, get me a Hugh O'Brien type. Four, get me a young <laughs> Hugh O'Brien. Five, who's Hugh O'Brien? <laughs> I thought that was really good. So he said all that, that in an good. interview that I really loved um, that was floating around, around 1978, I guess. Um, <laughs> From a 1998 article in the Washington Times, somebody wrote in and said, please advise where I could locate the following videos, Cruising to Terror with Linda Day George and Alice Sweet Alice with Brooke Shields. This was somebody who lived in Hicksville, New York. Um, so the answer was it was originally released. Uh, so this just gives you some background on the movie uh, video release. Originally released on the defunct Prism label, Cruise into Terror virtually has vanished. Oh, yes. Though you might try mail order specialists at Video Vault. Then they said Alfred Souls, or is it Soleil? I'm not sure. Alfred Souls' Primo Chiller, Alice Sweethouse, is available in a restored collector's edition from Anchor Bay. Oh, um, that's the one I have and, on oh, VHS. Yeah. Yeah, I have it too. The, the director's also, cut. Yeah, yeah. Also, there's a Magnum pedigree here. So, uh, of course, Roger Mosley played TC on Magnum, but Stella Stevens was in the episode Find Me a Rainbow, which starred the girl who is the beautiful blonde in um, Girls' Night Out. And Frank Converse was in my oh, least wow. favorite Magnum P.I. episode, The Kona Wins. Um, oh. so, so there's all your Magnum ties. Uh, intriguing. So, yeah, it was super intriguing, guys. So the um, just a little bit about Aaron Spelling. We'll have to do a better episode where we can sort of properly pay tribute to him. But um, I made these notes. Many of these actors would go on to work for Aaron in other Spelling production, like Cesare DeNova appeared on Fantasy Island. Hugh O'Brien, as I said, was in the pilot for Fantasy Island. Um, he'd also went, go on to be in one of my favorite episodes, which is Crescendo and the Three Feathers. 
Now, in he's in the Three Feathers episode, but the Crescendo episode is the one where Monty Markham is half man, half dog. Tony Tennille is a singer that he's been writing music for while he's living on Fantasy Island, and she goes to the island to meet him, but he's like, I don't want to meet her because I'm a half dog. But then she, like, kisses him, and he becomes Monty Markham. So Hillary Thompson, who's the ugly angel, I mean, the ugly uh, Debbie, played a <laughs> fake angel, played a fake angel on an episode of Charlie's Angels. Yeah, and she's also in one of my favorite Fantasy Islands, which is Title Reunion, which is also, by the way, a slasher. And that's a really good one. Uh, Christopher George was on Fantasy Island, Charlie's Angels, etc. Linda Day George was on Love Boat. And, of course, we know Kate Jackson will go on to star on Charlie's Angels. Tom Bosley, of course, appeared on Love Boat and John Forsythe on Dynasty. So you see Aaron Spelling like to use the same actors over and over again. And that's just my my uh, background on that. I'm just going to go. We don't have a lot of feedback, so but we do have one that's kind of long. So let's go ahead and do it real quick. So on Twitter, uh, our friend Icy Greg said, those titles remind me of the theatrical film Triangle, and that's about as slashery as I get. So he hadn't seen the movies yet. On Facebook, Marlon Dobbs said, Cruising the Terror. Watched it recently for the first time in decades, and although it does seem like pretty much the whole budget was applied towards the impressive cast, the movie is intriguing and has some great tension and suspense. Plus, Joanne Harris and Hillary Thompson, 70 favorites. Oh, I want to tell you, Hillary Thompson, who's the uh, ugly Debbie, she is currently married to Alan Ormsby, you know, who did Children Shouldn't Play With what? Dead Things. Yeah, they're, they're married. And they're awesome. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. Chad Williams, yeah, Chad Williamson wrote Cruise into Terror. Why, well, yes, I'll take that ticket, please. What's there to say? I absolutely love this movie. It's one of my alt. It's one of my favorite TV movies from the 70s. When I was about nine years old, I saw this movie on a lazy Sunday afternoon, and it terrified me. Years later, in the early 90s, I was working in a video store, remember those, while going to college. One day, while dusting the horror section, I came across Cruising the Terror on the bottom rack. And I knew when I saw the large plastic VHS cover that I had to watch it again to see if it still had the same magic that it did when I was nine. Released in 1978, this movie is the epitome of the slightly creepy, slightly sinister TV movie that I love. The story is simple. A small cruise ship is chartered to the Gulf of Mexico where it is plagued by mysterious incidents resulting in the ship being stalled above an ancient burial site of the Son of Satan. The passengers retrieve an ancient Egyptian sarcophagus and bring it aboard the cruise ship, and that's when things turn deadly. What I enjoy about this movie is that it's a product of its time. It was broadcast right after The Love Boat and Fantasy Island premiered, and by doing so, it completely cashed in on their popularity. Cruise ship check. Creepy, but not too creepy since this is network TV. Check. Tropical setting? Check. Women in bikinis? Check. TV stars from the 70s? Check. As far as acting goes, it's what you'd expect from all 70s regulars. There are some standouts, though. I love John Forsythe as the crazed preacher consumed with destroying the son of Satan. And Lee Merriweather plays his forlorn, sexually repressed wife. Lee really chews the scenery in this movie, especially when she lets her hair down with Frank Converse and later when, he speaks, when she speaks in tongues. Frank Converse plays the mysterious stowaway that may or may not be the guardian of the son of Satan. And Stella Stevens channels her heart of gold hooker character from the Poseidon Adventure, that's true, in a bad wig while flirting openly with the hunky Captain Hugh O'Brien. Oh, and that cat. Let's not forget the creepy black cat is in every scene when something goes wrong. By the way, the cat makes it at the end, too. We forgot to mention that. What I think I loved the most, yeah, he ends up, Stella Stevens takes him. So maybe Satan survives. He could be the guardian, right? Yes. So what I think I love most about this movie is the music. I love the music as everyone, at least those who are still alive, jump into the lifeboat and speed away before the ship explodes. And I love the ending with the chanting and the creepy music as the camera pans through the water back to the burial site where we hear Stella Stevens' voice say, there is a devil, there is no doubt. Is he trying to get in us or is he trying to get out? That's that poem we played. 
I could go on and on, but ultimately all I can say is that this film is pure TV movie gold. In fact, when I put my notice to quit the video store, I begged my manager for the VHS copy of Cruise and its Terror. <laughs> Since I think I was the only one who rented it, she gave it to me, and yes, I still have it. Questions. Mm. Was Frank really the guardian, or was it the cat? Oh, which we just said. If so, the captain saved the cat at the end. I know this throws off the total soul a total of souls on board, but I really wondered that. You know, I did too, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer to that is. I feel like there needs to be a sequel. Oh, yes. More, yeah, more cruise into terror, yes. More Even cruising. Cruising into terror with Al Pacino. So we have one piece of feedback from our friend Gore Blimey. Hey, Amanda, Dan, and Nate. It's Gore Blimey here from the Trilogy of Terror podcast. It's not often I can get hold of the films that you talk about, but I've been wanting to watch Cruise into Terror for a long time and was really excited to get my hands on a copy. Sadly, it is a very poor quality copy. It is hard to see faces clearly and it gets confusing working out what's going on in the dark scenes. But I did want to send some feedback in and here's my take on the movie. The cruise liner these passengers were meant to be on was overbooked, so they're being transported in a shabby old cargo boat instead which they all seem completely happy about. Apart from the captain, a macho guy who has a problem keeping his shirt buttons done up over his chest hair and tends to do heroic things quite a lot. His appeal doesn't go unnoticed though. The woman in a big hat flirts with him and wants to know more, asking for his story, saying she'd be happy to be bored by a long one. Now, Captain Andrews is often called Andy too, as in Andrew, so I guess his name is Andrew Andrews? Parents can be so cruel. He's a straightforward captain who likes things shipshape and Bristol fashion. And speaking of Bristols, we also have a couple of nubile young women who brought along tiny bikinis as a bit of light relief, for some viewers. Back to the crew, which is surprisingly just the three of them. Normally you'd expect a cruise to be awash with seamen, or maybe that's just the boat trips I've been on. As well as the captain, we have Nathan. He's a black guy who speaks in a stereotype accent, and... uh, I think he's the first to get killed off. And, of course, there's Dirk Benedict, greeting the passengers in his white uniform and making them feel welcome. A smart move. Dressed like that, I'd be more than happy for him to take me up the poop deck. Linda Day George and Christopher George are playing a married couple who still flirt together, especially in one scene when he talks about her spectacular entrance and tries to get her to show him again. By contrast, we have John Forsyth as the Reverend Charles Mather a Charlie who's in touch with a very different set of angels this time, and his sexually frustrated wife. Even without her spelling it out, we know this because of her moments alone when she's seen sensually caressing her wincy at nighty. One of the other passengers is heard asking about the Reverend, do you think he's come to save our souls? Well, let's say there are certainly a few our souls who could do with a bit of saving later on. The passengers assemble in the ship's lounge where they start figuring out who's who. This whole scene feels straight out of an Agatha Christie. Ray Milland is a professor with a theory about ancient Egyptians building a tomb in Mexico, which happens to be underwater near where the ship's route is. Things start to go weird when one of the young women, Debbie, is strolling on deck dressed up as Where's Waldo. There's a pair of red lights and a cat with a hilariously overdubbed meow, and she's so startled she falls over the side of the boat. But thankfully, is safe when she clings on long enough to get rescued. Luckily, it seems, this time Waldo was easy to find. The next day, they avoid the expected stormy sea, and there's not even a big swell, which is quite surprising since I'd just been watching Dirk Benedict greasing up oily pipes. Some of the passengers decide to go for a swim, and before you can say, 
Doesn't that music sound a lot like the Jaws theme? They're attacked by a stock-footed shark. Captain Chesthair wastes no time leaping into the water, saving the day and emerging in his wet, clingy, half-undone shirt. Later, the ship breaks down, again, directly above the site of the tomb. The passengers seem strangely enthusiastic to go diving to find it, presumably forgetting the trauma of nearly being eaten by a shark. It'll be fun, they say, deciding who will dive. The young women are particularly keen to see Dirk Benedict going down. And, to be honest, who can blame them? So, underwater they go, and soon return an ancient Egyptian nameplate. This gets the professor even more excited, while the reverend starts to freak out. I must admit, I found it a bit strange how a respected archaeologist is happy for an ancient site of worldwide importance to be ransacked by a group of clueless tourists. I thought he'd want everything painstakingly measured, recorded and logged, but maybe I've just watched too many time teams. They find the sarcophagus and raise it up on board, where people say, It's incredible. It's solid gold. It's magnificent. Um, it's tiny. Me, I'd be wondering if that's not just an ornament for the pyramid's mantelpiece. Nathan gets buried under the rocks beneath, giving the captain another reason to be manly, jump into the water and emerge wet with his shirt bursting open again. The sarcophagus seems to be alive and breathing, which is actually a pretty neat effect that looks quite creepy. Characters behave oddly. The Rev's wife walks into a man's cabin and drops her nightie, before emerging shortly after to attack her husband verbally in Latin. This causes everyone to rush out into the corridor in a scene with so many wide-open male shirts it looked like the walls had been carpeted. Christopher George's character becomes obsessed with money and is so horrible to Linda Day George I kept expecting her to shout out BASTARD! 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 at him. The professor shouts at the sarcophagus and swings an axe at it but ends up falling to the floor and a woman walks in to find it humping his head. Well, probably not, but it was very hard to make out exactly what was going on in the copy I watched. The Reverend throws some oil lamps at the sarcophagus and the badly dubbed cat, immediately turning the room into an inferno. People seem to return to their old selves and his wife decides to stay with him in the burning room while the others escape in a boat and the ship explodes to dramatic organ-like music. Cruising to Terror is a lot of fun. It's hard to take it seriously and it's not remotely scary, but it's hard not to like its enthusiasm and campiness. It has a great cast, like a who's who of 70s TV shows and TV movies, a daft story, Dirk Benedict at his hottest, and it's all totally entertaining. And that ticks all the boxes for me. I'm really pleased I got to watch it at last. So that was Gore Blimey's feedback. Uh, it was great. I'm so glad he sent that in. It was hilarious. I listened to it a couple of times, and um, I laughed out loud at some of his uh, innuendos. Also, he has such a beautiful speaking voice. I I was actually tempted when I got the feedback to ask Dan if he would just let us play the feedback as the synopsis. Because <laughs> well, I think he did a really good yeah. job, like, yeah, breaking yeah. down the film and, like, with that with that gorgeous voice of his. Um, some of the things I made notes on while I was listening to that uh, that are that mean nothing are that he also pointed out that the captain's name is Andy Andrews, which is unfortunate for Hugh O'Brien's character and pretty funny. Also, he pointed out something we didn't really talk about. We just sort of, uh, I think, glided over it, and that's that the Roger Mosley character, Nathan, who is the African-American in the film, well, I guess he's the black guy, he's not African-American, and he's from another country. Um, he's basically a stereotype, and he's the first to die, and that's probably an issue in the 70s that nobody probably thought about it, but it stuck out to me. Um, it stuck out even more because it felt like they had to drop in another minority so that Emmanuel guy showed up out of yes. nowhere. Yes. I don't even remember him getting on the boat, the Hispanic. 
Do you remember? <laughs> yes, he just shows I do. up. I do, yes. They're like, swab the deck. And I'm like, who the hell is that? So it's funny, but he's right to bring that up, that that was sort of a... I don't want to say it's a problem with the film. I mean, I don't think the film is meant to be mean-spirited, or, and they didn't mean anything by it, but it's something that I think we look at now, and we think maybe, hmm. And also, I don't remember where... He said it, but Gorgolami said the word asshole, and I don't think I've ever heard him curse before. He kind of makes it arsehole uh, relating to – he does it in an innuendo style that could be taken as asshole, or maybe not if you're not as, you know, filthy-minded as many are, like the cast. Oh, are we G-rated on this podcast? No. I don't think so. Oh. I am. Oh, well, you, you don't are, have to be. You don't have to be. Hey, come on. Oh, I'm just – I'm not a I'm not a good cusser. Um, Wes is a better cusser than I am. I I mean I can if I get mad or something, but it doesn't come like naturally to me in conversation. I guess. I mean I, I don't know why. I guess it's just the way I was raised didn't, or something. Didn't, I don't know. didn't you didn't you swear when uh, you guys were doing the drunk cast of like the Halloween Resurrection when they killed? Uh, I James did. I, I, remember. I was so mad. Yes. The only time I've heard Nate use those words is he was also mad talking about home invasion movies on an episode too. And I think he used the F oh, word. Wow. Or those shit. movies make me so mad. They make <laughs> me so mad. Do you look at the TV and go, how dare you? Yes. I'm like, sure. director, how dare you do this? And then usually I'll go <laughs> online and somebody will say, oh, well, you just didn't understand the movie. And I'm like, no, I got it. I just didn't like it. Yeah, I know. I hate that when people are like, you don't get it. No, I get it. It's just, it's got problems, you know? Yeah, it's just um, but well, I love uh feedback. I'm like, dang, he gave us a like a, for a Dan synopsis right there. <laughs> he did. He did. That's why I thought yeah. about just t- telling Dan to take the night off. Um, <laughs> If you're not familiar with Gorblimey and you're just listening to the show now and you he's never sent audio feedback before, um, he has a podcast called The Trilogy of Terror Podcast, which he does pretty sporadically. It comes out here and there, but it's really worth listening to, um, especially if you got a lot out of that piece of feedback because that's basically like that for 30 minutes straight, yeah. and it's hilarious, and it's charming. And also, he did this Friday the 13th two-part episode with Eric Thrift. Threefall? Am I saying that right? From This Year Continues. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever heard. I listen to it all the time, especially when I'm feeling really down. I always put on the Gore Blimey Eric uh, Friday the 13th episodes into my headphones, and I feel really good. So so if you're listening to this now and you don't know Gore Blimey, go discover him. He's wonderful. The other thing he did that was so great was he yelled out bastard, and it sounded so good yes. when he said it. Yeah. <laughs> and he got all three of them in, it. which is awesome, yeah. I, I I was actually on I don't know if it's the most recent one, but I was just on a trilogy of terror. He's doing he's doing a series of um episodes called Short and Curlies. And Yeah, that's right. And and I am on one talking short films. We talk uh, six short films and we kind of I pick three, he picks three, and we kind of judge them and try to pick which is our favorite. Yeah, so look for Dan's episode too. I'm I'm ashamed to say I haven't heard it yet. Oh oh, the other thing that Gorblimey said that was hilarious was the Where's Waldo comment yes. about the lady's outfit. That was really funny. Yeah, a lot of this was so good, but just to it's, cut it down, yeah. I mean, we can say some other things after. But he did agree with us. He said it was like an enthusiastic. I, I can't remember what the other word is. I wrote it down, and now I can't read my own handwriting. Oh, and that Dirk Benedict was hot. I think we can all agree on that yes. here in this room. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so did you guys want to say anything else about his feedback? I, I, I did like I really him. appreciate him writing in. Yes. Yes, thank you, girl. And I, I love the uh, the moment where uh, he's talking about Stella Stevens wanting to hear Hugh O'Brien's story and saying she's she's very interested <laughs> in being bored by a long one. 
which I like quite a bit. And here's the thing. Uh, I was too. Here's here's the thing with gore is that like that's a master class in innuendo. And even at the beginning when he says, and I felt bad that he's had such a tough time finding copies of these movies. I feel like he's a bit deprived or something. But but at the beginning when he says, I finally got my hands on a copy. I'm like, even that sounds incredibly filthy. <laughs> I, I loved it. So so thank you so much, Gore. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope you send in more of these. I know the movies are hard to watch sometimes. So sometimes the copies aren't great and sometimes they're not very accessible. But we do hope you continue to send in feedback, either written or through audio. And we hope other listeners are encouraged, too, to respond um, with their feedback because we love it, obviously. So thank you, GB. And finally, uh, going back to our last episode, Dave Brazil commented on our discussion on Smile, Jenny, You're Dead. I really thought this was cute, so I wanted to read it. As you were wrapping up the discussion of the romantic bedroom scene in Smile, Jenny, You're Dead, Dan said something like, and then you have Zalman King. He was just slightly changing the subject, but for a minute I got this image of the camera panning from the bed over to Zalman King just sitting in an armchair eating a bag of chips and watching them silently, <laughs> which would really amazing. I just love that. I love that. So I wanted uh-huh. to read that. <laughs> so that's our feedback. Um, thank you, by the way, David, and to everybody else who uh, sent us something that was really great. Can I mention something? I'm looking at yeah. Meryl right now, and and I, I was just looking, and because um, you said Dead Man Curves Curve was the same night as Cruising a Terror, but then uh, about a week before that was the great The Bermuda Depths, and Ooh. then uh, there there was a film called Night Cries, which I'm not familiar with. Oh, but it's so I love good with title. Michael Parks, with Michael Parks yes, and, uh, yes, and Susan, and St. Susan St. James. St. James. Yeah. And then about three days later was The Initiation of Sarah, which is a lot of fun. What an amazing and then, and then, month of TV. Yeah, and and then on February first, seventy eight was I've never seen this, but but the title I'm sure will spark something in your mind. See how she runs. And all I could think of was, which is probably a great movie, but all I could think of when I see, see, see how she runs is see how they run. And I go back to the beginning. Wow. Wow. See? Oh my God. Look what you did. And John John Forsyth is in that, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Oh my God. 1964. We're taking him back. Yeah, that's the first well, the, TV movie, um, See How They Run, yes. just in case people don't know. Um, yes. Uh, that aired, and uh, I think it was CBS world premiere. Was the, it could have been NBC. I think it was CBS. Um, wow. That will be our so last episode. So, our last episode will be See How She Runs and See How They Run. I you know what? We're done. Yeah, I think that would be cool if we could do that. First, we have to find a copy <laughs> of See How They Run. Um, yeah, <laughs> to do that. So let me just go ahead and briefly, since while we still have Nate, let's let's wrap this up. Um, our next episode is going to be a really fun one. So we're taking a little bit of hiatus because the next month for me is going to be really crazy because uh, I took on a lot of projects that I probably shouldn't have, and so I'm really busy. And so we'll probably reconvene sometime in the middle of June, but we're going to be going just right into horror. It's going to be so much fun. So we're going to do a tribute um, and a retrospective on Valerie Harper, and we're going to watch Night Terror and People Across the Lake. Um, People Across the Lake is streaming on Amazon, so anybody can watch it on there, and I highly recommend you do. It's it's batshit. It's really fun, and Night Terror is a classic. (laughs) So that's going to be really fun. Um, You can go ahead and follow us if you want more updates about our podcasts. You can follow us at the Made for TV Mayhem show on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. You can follow us now on Instagram 
at Made for TV Mayhem, or you can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com or just visit our site, which is madefortvmayhem.wordpress.com. Um, just briefly, I can't remember if I had announced it in the last episode, but I did the commentary with my friend Kayla Janice for The Girl Most Likely To, which is coming out, in, I think, in June through Kino Lorber. Um, so to keep an eye out for that. That's a great TV movie. Also on the social medias, I'm doing a lot of must-see streaming TV movies. There's a lot, a lot of TV movies on Amazon, and I'm trying to dig them out and send links to them for everybody. And I'll, and I've actually started on my blog again, and I'm doing kind of the same thing, except I'm doing I'm covering a TV series called Insight, which was a religious uh, program that we ran in syndication for 25 years. It was kind of like Twilight Zone sometimes, kind of like After School Special sometimes. And uh, the people who own Insight have started uploading it to YouTube legally. And so I'm picking an episode like every two or s- weeks or so, and I'm going to cover it on my blog. Just a capsule review. Sorry for the motorcycle. And I'm going to do my trap cast, hopefully, hey. before, hopefully before we get to the next full episode. But I've just been so busy. I have the script written. I just haven't had a chance to sit down and do it. So anyway, just keep paying attention if you enjoy the show. We're trying to keep things going as best we can. And in the month that we're not here, if it kind of ends up lasting like five or six weeks, which I think it might, I'm going to go ahead and try to post old episodes and just kind of like promote them. So if you're new to us, uh, keep a lookout for that and uh, we'll direct you to some of our best episodes. Um, Dan, real quick, what is up with you? Uh, What's going on? Oh, yeah. Adventure Super Train is still going and going. We are, uh, I think, oh gosh, when this episode goes up, the last precinct will have ended, and there'll be a new show with a guest host whom you folks might enjoy hearing, who has been on the show before, um, talking about a show. And then uh, it's still, um, Gore Blimey and myself are still talking about Man to Man with Dean Lerner, and Amy the Conqueror and I are still doing uh, Erie, Indiana. I'm still doing One Minute with European Zombies, circa 1980, covering Zombie Lake and Burial Ground. Uh, I'm around uh, about 45-ish minutes in, and uh, rocking All Week with you, the Happy Days podcast. As of the day we're recording this, I posted episode 7 on SoundCloud, uh, which covers uh, The Best Man and Great Expectations. I'll never uh, catch the- up. Well, I, you know me. I start yakking and I can't stop, and it goes in all different directions. So, uh, so I'm almost done with season one, uh, which is cool. Yeah, so that that that's what's going on there, and I'm still writing my Henning verse book. I've I've finished the first draft of the 666 reviews, and I am going to spend the next couple months revising those. And there's a little bit more to write for that. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of hanging out right now with a couple of dogs and um, cruising to terror is playing. Yay! Yeah. Yay. Okay, Nate, what's going on with you? Nothing. Don't ever say nothing. You're doing the hysteria continues. Well, yes, but nothing new. Well, you're making new episodes. Uh, yeah, we are, and and it's been fun. Hey, you guys I are like, like doing it. you guys are going, going, going. Like you're recording all the time now. We have been, but it's because we're going to be taking a long break. I think Eric can't record the entire month of June, so we're trying to bank a few episodes. Uh, oh. Is that the Capital Cruise of Terror? What's going on there? Is that that black cat? (laughs) And so I think that's it. So we're just going to close out with more theme music from Cruise of Terror. And we will see you next time. Good night.